Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome back into the Bama Beat Podcast, brought to you by Wickles Pickles. This is your host, Clint Lamb, sitting here once again with Brett Hudson. How are you doing this morning, Brett? I'm good, man. How's it going? And living that quarantine life, not yeah. a lot has changed. How was your Cinco de Mayo yesterday? It was good. The the wife and I had some nachos. Um, did some did some nachos at the house and watched uh, watched the most recent episodes of The Last Dance, that Jordan documentary that seems to be taking over the the sporting world. So uh, we had a we had a pretty good Cinco de Mayo. I would I would say. Well, what you what are your thoughts on the whole? uh the last dance the the michael jordan documentary i thought it's been fascinating i'm really i'm really enjoying it because and i i think it i think it's really the value of it is shown in how people of different ages are taking it so i was born in 92 so i was too young to really experience jordan especially like in his first peak when they were going uh, three Pete and 91, 92, 93, I was obviously either not alive or too young to experience that. And even when he came back after the baseball thing and went on a big run again, I was still too young to really understand and appreciate what Michael Jordan was. Now, apparently my, my parents say they took me to a, uh, a preseason game of his. So I've apparently seen Michael Jordan play in person, but uh, I have little to know memory of it so it's been cool for me to see it that way as someone who's like really seeing what mj was for the first time but talking to friends of mine who were older and saw mj and really understood him as it was happening they think it's cool to see it again not only through that prism but also to get all the behind this behind the scenes stuff that they uh they didn't get as it was happening so i think it's interesting that it's it's hitting as well on people of multiple generations. I think that that probably speaks to its overall quality that it's having profound yet different impacts on people of different generations. I think that's by far the best summary either one of us could have had on it. Cause I, I take the same thing away from it. I mean, when you look at, um, you know, just recapturing that greatness, even though I, you know, I was only, I'm only two years older than you, I don't really remember, you know, I can remember my brother being a couple years older than me, you know, him being, you know, five, six, seven, however old he was and watching the bulls and, and, you know, being a to this day, he's still a big bulls fan, but just watching Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Tony Kukoc. I mean, the, the entire group, I can remember watching them, but it was just something that was on. I was wanting to be playing with toys or doing something else while it was on. So I don't, I didn't fully appreciate it either. And yet, you know, I've gone back and watched highlights and, you know, other smaller documentaries, but this just the, what it reveals, you know, all the behind the scenes stuff, um, you know, he didn't have to deal with social media like a guy like LeBron James does, but just the people that were showing up in droves to, to kind of see him in person and he couldn't go anywhere, um, you know, quarantine to his hotel room, that kind of thing. I, it's just, it's a fascinating documentary 
and I've been thrilled with it. I'm excited. You know, we still have four more episodes, so still got a lot more Michael Jordan to cover. And I'll be curious to see how, you know, you know how it plays out, but I'll be curious to see how it all played out behind the scenes and getting where it got, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm, uh, like I said, I'm really looking, uh, I'm really looking forward to, to watching the rest of it. It's been, it's been a lot of fun and obviously it's been a nice, uh, nice reprieve from a sportsless culture. Although we're starting to get some of that back with the Korean baseball league starting up somewhat recently the uh the german soccer league bundesliga is going to be starting back later this month according to uh authorities over there so we're slowly but surely getting our our sports back and it seems like every couple weeks or so we get a new plan for how mlb is trying to come back so they're clearly uh seems more likely than not they're floating out test balloons as to how they can come back so i'm I'm hoping in the next couple months or so we can get major league baseball back and maybe our, our sportsless culture won't be that anymore. But I mean, luckily for Alabama fans, they haven't been listening to, they haven't been living in a sportsless culture. Thanks to the Bama beat podcast, of course, brought to you by Wickles Pickles. Exactly. Well played. And that's exactly what we're going to be getting back to right now because the defensive lines up next. And I think that it's going to be one of the more fascinating positions to talk about because I don't know about you, Brett, but I feel like this could be one of the biggest strengths on the team. Um, but you actually have a question first from, you know, we've been sitting on this thing for months, it seems like. We have been. So uh, shout out to Andy in Atlanta, Andrew Morrison. Appreciate you, man. Uh, I, I know you've been waiting on this for, for a while, and I've done the research to justify the wait, I promise. So the question was, and, and his question kind of gets to the the macro of the defensive line as a position group before Clint and I get into the micro of individual players in the defensive line and how it might look when football ultimately comes back in, in 2020 or in the worst case scenario in the spring of 2021. Uh, you, you all know the, the doomsday scenarios by now. His question was historically, it feels like Bama defenses have been better when the strength is up front. The strength will shift from the secondary in 19 to the D-line in 20. Do you agree with this assertion? And do you think Bama will get more of its defensive identity back in 2020? So before we get to the, the research of the value of defensive line play in, in Alabama's recent history, I will say I, I almost agree with his assertion that the, sh- the, the strength of the defense will shift from the secondary in 19 to the defensive line in 2020. It's definitely going to shift from the secondary, given the losses they have, particularly on the back line with McKinney, Shaheen Carter, and Jared Maiden. But where it shifts in the front remains to be seen for me. It could be in the linebacker spot. It could be on the front line. But it's definitely going to shift towards the line of scrimmage. Are you with him that it's definitely going to shift to the defensive line? Or are you with me that it could be at linebacker? We have to wait and see. Uh, I'm just going to be more general, and this is kind of a cop-out, but I'm just going to go with it shifting from the back half of the defense to the front half in the front okay. seven. Okay, that's that's fair. Now, to get to the bigger part of his question, do you think Bama will get more of the defensive identity back in 2020? I tried to apply the numbers to his claim to see if it's true. So what I did was I found every Alabama defense of the Saban era and got how much better they were on a yards per play allowed basis than the national median of that season. And 
I did it that way because it's a way of adjusting for the offensive environment of a given season. And that's important because in 2009, for example, Texas led the nation with 3.84 yards per play allowed. But in 2019, Ohio State led the nation with 4.13 yards per play allowed. That doesn't necessarily mean that 09 Texas was roughly 7% better than last year's Ohio State defense because 2009 was a very different offensive environment than 2019. That seems pretty clear. So this is a way of showing how good a given Alabama defense was in its own offensive environment rather than letting different offensive environments muddy the waters. Did I, did I explain that well? Do you, are you following me? Yeah, following you so far. Okay, so that being said, here are the five best Alabama defenses since 2009 by this metric, which again is yards per play allowed relative to the national median of the given season. And I have all of the numbers for every Alabama defense of the Saban era, if you if you want them, including 07 and 08. But the five best since 2009 have been in order. 2011, so number one to number five, 2011, 2016, 2017, 2009, and 2012. Now let's look at those five defenses individually. In 2011, while it's hard to say that that defense was led by any one position, considering it may be one of the best defenses in college football history, I do think it's fair to say that defense was noticeably better at linebacker than it was on the defensive line when you Look at the linebacking core they had in, in 2011. Uh, that was Dante Hightower's junior year. That was Nico Johnson's junior year. Um, going down the list, Jarrell Harris was a senior outside linebacker. C.J. Mosley was a rotational guy, I think. Yeah, Trey DePriest was a, a freshman on that on that squad. Alex Watkins made, a, made an impact. Adrian Hubbard was a freshman on that team, too. Uh, then you compare that to the defensive line, which – from a tackles perspective, was led by Damian Square, Jesse Williams, Nick Gentry, and Josh Chapman. Um, so I, I think it's fair to say that uh, I think it's fair to say that that defense was a little bit better at linebacker than it was at defensive line. Although you're kind of splitting hairs when it comes to that 2011 defense. 2016, Deshaun Hand, Dalvin Tomlinson, and Deron Payne were, were your defensive line. But you also had Reuben Foster and Sean Dion Hamilton at linebacker and Ronnie Harrison and Minka Fitzpatrick in the secondary. So I don't know that you can really identify any one position group as a clear leader of that defense. Do you agree? Yeah, uh, it, especially when you start including the edge rushers, too. Exactly. Uh, in 2017, third by, by this metric, this is probably as close as we get to a true defensive line-led defense. This was sophomore Raquan Davis when he looked like a top 15 pick alongside Deron Payne and Isaiah Bugs and Deshaun Hand. The main competition in terms of position group leading that defense in 2017 was from the secondary, which included Ronnie Harrison, Minka Fitzpatrick, and two senior corners, Anthony Averett and Levi Wallace. So I think 2017 is probably about as close as you get to a defensive line-led group in this top five of, of Alabama defenses, because then you move to 2009 – where Marcel Darius and Terrence Cody are on your defensive line, but you have Rolando McLean at linebacker, and your secondary has Mark Barron, Javier Arenas, and Kareem Jackson. So it's tough to say that was a defensive line-led uh, defense. And then in 2012, uh, you look at that linebacker core. You had C.J. Mosley, Trey DePriest, and Nico Johnson all balling out on the same defense. And in the secondary, 
You had Dion Ballou, Vinny Sanceri, D. Milner, and Robert Lester. So if you look at that defensive line in 2012, yes, you had Jesse Williams as a senior. You had Damian Square as a senior. Ed Stinson was a junior. Jeffrey Pagan. Was it Pagan or Pagan? I can't remember. Pagan, yeah. Pagan, okay. Jeffrey Pagan, Brandon Ivory, both of them came out as uh, as sophomores and kind of developed a little bit. Quentin Dial was a senior that year, too. So you weren't bad on the defensive line by any stretch of the imagination. But, I mean, yo, you got C.J. Mosley and Trey DePriest and, and Nico Johnson on the same linebacker core. That's clearly a linebacker-led defense. So just looking at those top five defenses by this metric, again, 2011, 2016, 2017, 2009, and 2012, and you look at the personnel on those defenses, I don't know that I can make much of a case that Alabama's defenses under the Saban era have been better when their defensive line led than otherwise. Am I? It, does that make sense to you? Yes, it does make perfect sense. Um, now, 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 there is a pretty clear correlation between good defensive line play and good defenses, but I don't know that you can – I don't know that I would classify almost any of those defenses as truly – Defensive line led, except for 2017, maybe. The way that I would actually put it, and, and this because this includes the defensive line, is when you've had dominant front seven play, that includes the inside linebackers, mm-hmm. um, edge rushers, and defensive linemen. When you when you're getting dominant performances out of certain players in your front seven, that's where Alabama has been at its best. And when you compare that to this upcoming defensive line with the way that it's supposed to be a lot better, and we'll get into that here in a second, but plus the uh, expected uh, production increase and impact from the inside linebackers, you're talking about outside of, you know, trying to replace that edge rush, uh, your outside linebackers. I think that they're, you know, this defense is showing the qualities that you'll need for them to return to being one of the more dominant defenses in the country if they can adequately replace those edge rushers, and of course they got to replace several guys in the secondary, that's part of it. But if you can get a really good pass rush up front, you, that can mask some of your deficiencies in your secondary. So I think it's more of a front seven thing than a defensive line thing for sure. Actually, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm, I'm I'm spitballing this thought off the top of my head. So forgive me if it's not like well well organized. But as I look at these top five defenses again by uh, yards per play allowed greater than the national median of that given year, 2011, 2016, 2017, 2009, and 2012, the trend I'm noticing is those defenses were good up the middle, and that's very much in line with coaching adage in terms of uh, defensive football. I mean, look at 2016. You had Reuben Foster and Sean Dion Hamilton in the middle of your linebacking core. You had Ronnie Harrison in the middle as a safety 2017 number three uh ronnie harrison and minka fitzpatrick uh as safeties in that in that defense 2009 mark Barron was a safety on that team rolando mcclain was a middle linebacker yeah 2000 yeah exactly and you go to the defensive line you have darius in 2012 we mentioned the linebacking core there already cj mosley traded priest nico johnson but then at safety, you have Vinny Sanceri and Robert Lester. Robert Lester was a senior that year. Vinny Sanceri was a was a sophomore, but Vinny was contributing earlier in his career than than Robert. So you had produce you had productive versions of both of those players. So 
as I kind of look at this very quickly, I'm realizing the the common thread between those defenses is that they were very good up the middle as opposed to being very good at the front. Yes, I, it, I completely agree with you. Their interior defensive line was good. The second level at inside linebacker was good. And then their safety play, they had at least one top-notch playmaking safety. Um, and so, yeah, that's actually a very good observation, and I completely agree with it. So I just want to run through the the numbers again because I, I did all this research, so I might as well uh, give it to you. Many people will, will find this interesting. So, again, the, the metric of uh, – Percent better than yards per play allowed national meeting of that season. The 2011 team was number one. I mean, this this will melt your mind. On a yards per play basis, they were 48% better than the national average in 2011. Wow. 48%. That is, yeah. Wow. They allowed 3.3 yards per play that year. The national median was 5.4. No Saban defense has been better than 36%. And, and they, they were 48% better. The closest to that was 2016. And I had to use 36% because that team was 35.05% better than the national median. So if we're going to round down, which from 35.05%, I think is fair. No Saban defense has been better than 35% percent better than the national median in yards per play allowed, except for 2011, which was 48% better. Um, going through the Saban history, all of these, all of Nick Saban's defenses have been better than the national median. Uh, the closest to that was obviously 2007. They were only 5.8% better than the national median in yards per play allowed. Uh, I mentioned the top five was 2011, 2016, 2017, 2009, and 2012. Uh, most of the Saban defenses fall between 15% better than the national median and 30% better than the national median. 2009 was 29.7% better. Uh, 2018 was 15.09% better. And then the defenses that fall in between were 2012, 2015, 2008, and 2019, and 2010. Um, to, to put the context on the recent defenses since they've been uh, under fire, 2018 defense was 15.09% better than the national median. 2019 was 17.1% better than the national median and yards per play allowed. Um, so you're talking about a significant dip going from 48 to 17. Yes, yes. So uh, just take the, the last four years, 2016 and 2017, they were 35% and 33% better than the national median. Then the two years after 2018 and 2019, 15% better and 17% better than the national median. So uh, yes, the, the, the defense has gotten worse over the last two years at Alabama. I don't know that anyone would deny that, but it's not the abject failure that it is often categorized as because if you look at 2013 and 2014, for instance, those defenses were 13.5% and 12% better than the national median. Those were still uh, pretty solid teams, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you bring this up because 
you know, people are wondering what or who to blame for Alabama's defensive struggles in 2019. And, you know, you can point to a lot of different factors, but when you start talking about what we've kind of, you know, actually right here on the podcast, I've, I've slowly learned, or at least now I have this belief that, you know, your, your interior defensive line play and your inside linebackers, when, when Alabama's had their dominant defenses, they've gotten plenty of production and impact from those two spots. And mm-hmm. when you talk about the defensive line this past year being filled, you know, LeBron Ray, one of the senior guys on the team, ends up going out with an injury early. You had a guy like DJ Dell who had, you know, emerged, all, you know, way back in the spring as a starter, he ends up dealing with a knee injury for at least a, a portion of the season. You're dealing with a lot of true freshmen, first-year players, having to contribute earlier than they expected on the defensive line. And then you got two true freshmen inside linebackers because you lose a guy like Dylan Moses and seniority and Joshua McMillan. So mm-hmm. right there up the, up the gut, you're talking about you know two positions that were completely depleted due to – or at least had a ton of – first year true freshman playing no wonder they struggled it's really not that big of a surprise when you compare that to past defenses yeah no i i I agree so um i appreciate the question from from andy uh like i said i was i've been saying this for months now literally but i I was glad that the the question kind of inspired that that research out of me because i i found it i found it interesting to to rank the saban defenses this way And, and i'm sure there are better ways to to rank the defenses like I'm, I'm sure bill Connolly could pull out an s and p plus or sp plus for for all of these defenses since that's opponent adjusted and tempo adjusted and etc but this does it just for the offensive environment of the given season so it's not the greatest way to measure a defense but it's it's probably as close as i can get as just a, a common man without uh without without access to advanced analytics like like Bill Connolly's and, and otherwise. So I thought that was uh, – I think that's about as good as I can do in, in that regard. So we appreciate the question from, from Andy in Atlanta, Andrew Morrison. If you want to have your own question spawn a, a conversation like this one, the best way to do that is to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes of the Bama Beat Podcast, write a short positive review of the podcast or about any of the people that are on it. We'd appreciate that. And if you screenshot that review and send it to me, bhudson at tuscaloosanews.com, you can send it to my Twitter DMs, you can send it to my Instagram, uh, private messages, whatever uh, platform best suits your interests. Do that and uh, include the question or topic you want addressed on the podcast. And you can you can be like Andy in Atlanta and spawn what I'm assuming has been at least a 20-minute conversation on this topic. Completely agree. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to actually start diving in uh, to the individual defensive linemen on the roster for 2020 and what we actually expect out of those guys. So stick, you know, stay tuned for that. This has been the Bama Beat Podcast brought to you by Wickles Pickles. And we're back on the Bama Beat Podcast brought to you by Wickles Pickles. Wickles, of course, a family recipe, 90 years in the making right here in the state of Alabama, pickles, relishes, okras, much more, including a sandwich spread. Uh, we're going to be doing a, a roundtable with Hunter Johnson and Cecil Hurt pretty soon. And uh, I'm sure in in this quarantine time, Hunter's culinary brain is getting even more creative with, uh, with Wickles Pickles. So I look forward to hearing what else you can do with Wickles. Go to WicklesPickles.com to see all of their 
products. And that's the best way to do it because I would normally tell you to go find them in the pickle aisle of your local store. But as we know, the, the grocery stores are a different place these days. So there's no guarantee that Wickles will be there. But check there first. And if they're not there, go to WicklesPickles.com. Wickles Pickles, let's get wicked. So now that we have gone on the the grand scheme of things in the uh, defensive line and its role in Alabama's general scheme, I guess we can look at individuals that will make up this year's defensive line whenever the season does end up happening. And it's kind of a interesting conversation because there's so many legitimate candidates for it. Uh, just because you saw so many young players get opportunities to prove something about themselves last year by when Byron Young, Fedarian Mathis, Christian Barmore, Justin Aboyby, DJ Dale all fit that mold. Uh, and then some guys that could come up, Braylon Ingram, um, Stefan Wynn Jr. and Ishmael Sopcher all fit that mold. And, and haven't mentioned LeBron Ray, LeBron Ray, the one proven piece of, of this defensive line. And then there are a bunch of edge guys, guys like in, in the recruiting class, I, I should specify guys like Will Anderson Jr., um, Hugh Robinson, et cetera, that, uh, that could, uh, that are going to play an edge role, but could kind of fit the, the role of a defensive end if the, if the coaching staff so, so desires. So uh, looking at this defensive line, I think the one obvious is LeBron Ray. He's going to be a starting defensive end. And it seems more likely than not that DJ Dale is going to be a starting nose guard since he was that as a, as a true freshman from game one of his freshman year. What happens on the other end position and then how the rotation solidifies itself is going to be really interesting because there are a bunch of different ways that this could go. Yeah, um, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think DJ Dell and LeBron Ray are automatic starters. Um, now, with Christian Barmore, he's probably going to be considered the favorite amongst fans, and rightfully so. Uh, I think that he's going to continue, he's going to need to continue to prove that he can be an impact defensive lineman and do his job consistently if he wants to assume a full-time role in Alabama's defensive front. And I think he's capable of doing that. I think that when he actually started having much larger workloads put on him, he responded and handled pretty handled it pretty well. So I would fully expect him to be a starter. Um, but when you're talking about those three guys being your, starter, your starters in Barmore, Dell, and Ray, and then you start going to that next tier with Fedarian Mathis, Justin Aboigby, uh, Byron Young, and Stephon Wynn, you're talking about adding more defensive line depth, guys with plenty of experience, uh, had shown some flashes during the, whether it be their true freshman season or if you're a guy like Fedarian Mathis who's getting up there and becoming a more veteran presence on that defensive line. All those guys actually ended up um, you know, showing a lot of potential. And then, like you mentioned, you got Braylon Ingram, you got Ishmael Sopcher, uh, who was a former top 50 recruit, uh, massive presence, massive body, being 6'4", 334 pounds. Uh, those are a couple of guys who I would expect to add into the depth there in uh, in this season as well. And then you have that true freshman class coming in. And no, they missed out on a couple of guys, and it wasn't as impressive as it could have been. But you know, just adding a five-star prospect like Timothy, Timothy Smith, who Nick Saban has constantly praised, or, you know, not maybe not constantly, but there's been multiple occasions where 
He has uh, brought up Timothy Smith and what he thinks he can provide the defensive front, being 6'4", 320 pounds, being super athletic for a guy that size, could play all along Alabama's defensive front. When you throw that in with the, you know, right now, you know, I'm counting at least six or seven who are capable of handling snaps in 2020, that's an eight-man rotation. Uh, And will it be that big? No, probably not, but I think you can weather injuries a lot better this season. I think that you can, uh, no matter who's going to be in there, you're going to have a fresh rotation of guys who are playing top-quality football. And I think the aspect that that goes a little bit unnoticed from last year, and we've brought it up a little bit here, is because of all those injuries last season, you had guys playing in situations they weren't comfortable in playing in yet. Just because you had to have them, there weren't any options. So when you talk about guys – who are really good pass rushers, who might not be good early run-down uh, run defenders or vice versa, guys who can come in on first and second down, stop the run really well, but they're not good at getting after the quarterback. This, uh, you know, Pete Golding uh, and Nick Saban are going to have the ability this season to play guys only in situations where they feel the best, and that is going to make Alabama's defense a lot better just based off of of that fact because you're playing to your players' strengths. And I think that's an an important difference between what we saw last year and what we could potentially see this year. The the one thing I'm I'm really confident in is that Fedarian Mathis is going to have a bigger role than he had on last year's defensive line because he showed that he can play both tackle or, or nose guard and end last year. He did right. both last year. And part of that was necessity since DJ Dale went down uh, due to injury and LeBron Ray went down due to injury and Raekwon Davis can only play so many snaps, right? So uh, you got to do something there. And, and he was able to fill both voids and, and that speaks positively of him, but also he did so pretty well. He's, he's a promising prospect. So He's he's someone who I anticipate. I mean, and I don't have access to his snap count from last year, but whatever it is, I feel pretty confident that it's going to increase in in 2020. That I'm I'm certain of. But the 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 real question comes in with guys like Byron Young and Justin Aboigbe, and even to a a lesser extent, uh, guys like Stephon Wynn Jr. and um, Braylon Ingram, because. And the coaching staff clearly couldn't really solidify a one and two with Byron Young and Justin Aboigbe because they kind of were more or less interchangeable for the second half of, of the season. That's not necessarily a bad thing for, for either one of them. Alabama's uh, rotation, their reputation for rotating defensive linemen is pretty well established now. But Byron Young and Justin Aboigbe are somewhat clearly on – level footing, or at least they were at the end of the 2019 season. So it's hard to project where they'll be in 2020, especially since we didn't have a spring football to have one of them potentially separate from the other or both of them develop at the same pace to keep this uh, this relationship that they had between each other in the second half of the 2019 season. So that's why I'm mostly confident in Federian Mathis's role growing just because it's hard to project the same thing for Byron Young since and Justin DeBoigby since they're so clearly tied to one another that it's hard to project what their roles will be without having seen them both develop from their freshman seasons to their sophomore seasons. Another excellent point, and I completely agree with you there. Um, I did find it really interesting. Last year, we'd be sitting up in the press box with each other, and they'd be announcing the starters, and Justin Aboigbe would always be listed as the starter, 
but Byron Young would actually be the third defensive lineman who would get the start it, later on in the, the season. Opposite. It was the opposite. It was Byron Young would be announced as a starter, but a Boygby would be the one getting the first snap. Interesting. Okay, see, I had it as the exact opposite, and I could be wrong. I just remember writing that note down in my notebook, and uh, Byron Young actually ended up with five starts last year, and Justin Aboyby only got two. Now, granted, both of them played in 10-plus games, um, but you're talking about two guys, and that was a lot more out of necessity. I don't think either one of those guys were necessarily ready to be handling the snaps that they were asked to, but that's only going to help them moving forward. It's just it made Alabama's defense struggle in 2019, or it contributed to it. Right. What's crazy to me is when you start talking about the rotation of guys, where, I mean, how do you divvy up the snaps? Because a guy like Timothy Smith coming in, He's a five-star prospect, one of the best defensive linemen I think Alabama's gotten in quite a while, and they've had some really good ones when you look at it. But you're talking about a guy who can play, you know, you're talking about Fedarian Mathis being able to play inside and out. Timothy Smith can do that same thing. You've got Christian Barmore who's going to demand snaps, DJ Dell, LeBron Ray, Fedarian Mathis. You have Justin Aboy being Byron Young. Um, you have Stephon Wynn Jr., who probably is good enough to handle, you know, at least, you know, roughly, you know, maybe up to 10 snaps a game. Um, I think he could probably handle more than that. But just with the depth of the defensive line, I, I wouldn't foresee him playing much um, or a ton. But it's just hard to try to figure out how this defensive line is going to shake out because it's so deep. Uh, and, and in comparison to last year, you had a lot of talent, and that was evident when you watched them play, but they just weren't ready. Well, now you've got experienced guys who's going to have another offseason under their belts. Now, granted, because of the COVID-19 stuff, it hadn't been as much of an offseason as you know they probably, probably would have liked to have seen, but this Alabama defensive line, in my opinion, is going to be one of the most dominant in the country, and it's gotten back to the fact that you're going to have you know, up to maybe three deep at almost every position along that that defensive front who can come in and play snaps and play them effectively. That's something that I haven't seen from Alabama in quite some time. And, and if you're expecting a Jonathan Allen, Deron Payne type of major impact player who's, who's racking up quite a bit of stats, it might not be that way because you have so much depth and rotation, but I think it'll really help those guys and it'll keep them a lot more fresh, you know, having to go against these style of offenses. The other aspect of this that I think is really important because you have so many different styles of players on your defensive line is when you're playing certain types of offenses. If you're playing a, you know, run heavy power team, you've got the guys, the big boys that you can put up there up front who can effectively stop the run and do those things. If you're playing a team that likes to sling the ball around a ton, you know, potentially like Mississippi state having, um, Mike Leach come in there. He loves to throw the football around. You've got plenty of interior options as far as your pass rush is concerned with Christian Barmore, LeBron Ray, Justin Aboyby is an effective interior pass rusher. Um, so you have all these different options, and you might not see you might not see the same three guys starting each and every week because they do have that versatility to start and, and mess with guys in different areas. And I think that's going to make Alabama's defense really, really good. This is it's like I said coming into this podcast. I really feel like the defensive line, as far as the depth um, and the talent, is one of the most talented positions on the roster. And I think that also includes inside linebacker. And when you combine those two, it just I, that I, I'm a lot higher on this Alabama defense than probably a lot of people because I think that they have the recipe to be really good if they can get at least somewhat of a complimentary pass rush from the exterior. I don't really see this defense. You know, they're definitely not going to take any sort of step back or continue taking steps back. I think it's going to be a massive leap forward, getting back somewhat close to where they used to be. 
No, I, I agree. And I think you made a, a good point about uh, not having a Jonathan Allen, Deshaun Hand type breakout season or Quentin Williams type season in this defensive line. Um, I, I mean, because I, like you said, I don't know that that player exists in this defensive line, or at least if it does, it's not fully developed yet. And that's okay because, again, this defensive line will have experience, which last year's defensive line obviously did not. Frankly, it didn't have a ton of experience when it was fully healthy. I mean, it had Raekwon and LeBron Ray, but it started a true freshman on nose guard. And then obviously all of the rotation pieces were uh, either underclassmen or inexperienced guys or both uh, freshmen in some cases, like Byron Young and Justin Boyd being. Now they have that experience. And I mean, if, if there's going to be a huge breakout type year. I don't know that LeBron Ray would qualify for that because I think everyone knows who LeBron Ray is at, at this point. If there's going to be that breakout year, I guess it would who who would you identify as that candidate? Would it would it be maybe Christian Barmore as someone who has shown some interior pass rush ability? So if he shows the ability to stop the run, he could be a, a big playmaker type, but he would also have to beat out DJ Dale for that starting nose guard role. Maybe it could be that, or maybe for Darian Mathis, this is his time. If, if you had to pick a, if, if there is a create, basically create a Quinnen Williams award, someone who goes from relative unknown to superstar in one year, who on this defensive line do you think it would be? Well, it, it's kind of hard to answer that question because LeBron Ray last year was a guy who, you know, I had talked about being potentially that guy who could, I didn't think he was going to go from being, you know, relatively unknown to climbing up and becoming the number three pick in the draft. But I did say if there was an Alabama defensive lineman who could go from not being a starter and, and he was a five-star prospect coming out of high school. So he's well known, but maybe not nationally as much but could maybe climb from being a relative unknown to being a potentially a first round pick for Alabama. It was going to be LeBron Ray. But right. now that you started to see him in a starting role and, and other people were talking about him, I think he's a lot more known and people kind of expect that now. I mean, even right now, despite the fact that he missed, uh, you know, all but three games last year, Matt Miller with Bleacher Report in his uh, first round mock draft way too early for 2021 he had LeBron Ray going to the Baltimore Ravens at number 30. So he's getting plenty of hype and love. Uh, Christian Barmore is another guy. I think from a national perspective, he would be the guy that would come out of nowhere to a lot of people. Now, Alabama fans, just watching him and his motor and watching how his teammates have responded to him and, and really been pulling for him as a player um, because he works so hard. I think that they all have come to know him and they expect a huge leap. In fact, I would, I, you know, I'm starting to look at it and say, I think people might be expecting too big of a leap from Christian Barmore because they I just, every, everybody's kind of putting him in that Quentin Williams mold as he's going to be that breakout guy. And I think that he's going to end up being a really good defensive lineman, but I think he's still got some things to prove. And I think the expectations with him need to be, you know, kind of brought back a little bit, reeled back in. Um, but that doesn't mean that he's not going to be a really good player. So it's very hard. Those were the two guys that, you know, you would probably say, you know, DJ Dell. Um, I just don't think he's a high quality pass rusher as much uh, enough at this point in his career to be considered that true huge breakout guy because Quentin Williams, what he, what he did 
was he was an interior defensive lineman. Essentially, he was playing nose guard, and he was an absolute terror, you know, getting after the quarterback. And really, he hurt the sack numbers of other guys because, you know, other guys would be right there ready to get the sack, and it would just be Quinn Williams getting there a step faster. And I just don't really see that guy on the roster right now. But that doesn't mean that they're – in fact, I think their defensive line could be better as a unit than it's been in the last several years, you know, post Jonathan Allen and Deron Payne. But you're just not going to get that type of impact player. That's actually super rare. No, you're, you're right. And, and like you said, if uh, if the standard for Christian Barmore is to become Quinton Williams, which to be clear, uh, we know better than to think that everyone is thinking that. But if the standard for Christian Barmore is to become – Quentin Williams, there is a lot of room in between being the number three overall pick in the draft and being a good defensive lineman. There are a lot of possible outcomes in between those two things. It would be good news for Alabama to get out of out of Christian Barmore. But to get back to the the overall point you made, I, I, I still think you're right in that this defensive line may not have that Jonathan Allen type player that is the semifinalist and finalist for all the national awards on the defensive side when all of that comes around if the season goes as scheduled that stuff comes around in uh mid-december i don't know that alabama's gonna have that guy that's a finalist for the bed Eric or the lombardi or whatever the awards are, are called i can't i can't remember off the top of my head but it is going to be an improved defensive line because there's experience there now that they didn't have in the previous season and in theory they're, they're starting with a with a full bill of health. So hopefully it uh, it stays that way. And I, I do agree that I think this, this defensive line is going to be much improved. I'm still, uh, you know, having gone through the personnel of it now, I'm, I'm more likely to agree with the, with Andy from Atlanta, who said the strength is going to shift from the secondary to the defensive line. Uh, before we went through it, I thought, it was probably more likely to shift to linebacker with Dylan Moses and, and et cetera. Now I, I can see the case he's, he's making. I'm still not all the way sold. I still think it's possible that linebacker is the strength of, of this defense, but I, I see his line of thinking and I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to deny it just on its face. It's there's certainly a case to be made that the defensive line will be the strongest unit on Alabama's defense in 2020. Yeah, I definitely would think it'd either be the interior defensive line or the inside linebackers, and the main reason for that is simply because I think the be- one of the best players in college football is Dylan Moses, and getting him back and having the experience with Christian uh, Harris and Shane Lee, uh, getting a full season of starting experience. You have Ali Keho, you have the return of Joshua McMillan with the experience um, that he brings to the table being a sixth-year uh, senior Um and then you start talking about some of those depth guys and then, you know, Demoye Kennedy, Jackson mm-hmm. Bratton. I mean, the list goes on and on there too. I think by far the two biggest strengths on the defensive side of the football are the interior defensive line and the inside linebackers. And it's yeah. the best that I've seen at either one of those two spots in quite a while. They, they And they got some holes they got to patch up around them and, and they have the talent to do it. It's just a matter of getting that talent ready to uh, and prepared to play. And you still got some impact players. You know, you're talking about at safety, you have Jordan Battle, you're talking about at corner, you have Patrick Sertan Jr. So you already have a couple of pieces already in place at some of those other spots. But this album of defensive line could be so good and, and really the defense in general. Um, if they just get a couple of questions answered, 
I think that they're going to be able to return to being their typical dominant self. And when you combine that with what Alabama's offense should be, regardless of if that's Mac Jones or Bryce Young, obviously if Bryce Young's in there, he's probably going to have to have done a ton of stuff right to be the starter. So you would expect the offense to, to be really thriving with him under center, or if it ends up being Mac Jones with the weapons they're going to have, the run game, the offensive line. Um, you know, I've really been building up this Alabama roster or this Alabama team in general to being a national championship contender. And and I think they should be right up there in the same conversation with Clemson and Ohio State as being the three main ones that you should be looking at, despite the fact they lose to a tongue of Aloha. And the reason for that is what we've been talking about with these position group breakdowns. And you talk about the fact they're returning their offensive coordinator and their defensive coordinator for the first time. And it seems like forever you've got Nick Saban. Um, you've got a good freshman class coming in the number two overall class from 2020. Um, so I just think it's, it's a recipe for Alabama to do really good things this year. It's just, they got a couple of questions on the defense side of the football. And if they can get that answered, the sky's the limit for this, this, uh, this team. Well, I think we finally did it, Clint. We finally broke down every position group on, on this team in the, uh, in the spring, it took us, a few months and we had to navigate a global pandemic to do it, but we, uh, we finally did it. And I am sure our, uh, Nobel peace prize is in the mail. Oh, there's no doubt. I mean, we've, we've, we've kept the, the stream coming of content. And it's like you said, we got the round table coming up. Um, we actually are going to be releasing a, a basketball podcast from Hunter Johnson and Cecil Hurd that they recorded earlier. I'm looking forward to actually getting to listen to that to myself. Cause I haven't had a chance to yet, but we're going to continue to have the content rolling out. Um, and then we'll kind of start getting into some things as far as previewing the season, maybe start looking at some of the opponents. We might start looking at some of the historical stuff in comparison, because just doing that analysis that you did on the defensive line and just where, you know, when Alabama has been at its best defensively, that's the kind of stuff that really fascinates me. And I would love to go in and, and do more deep dives like that and try to uncover some of the numbers behind, you know, why this, this Alabama team in 2020, 20 might struggle or why they could be really good. I think that would be a lot of fun. So we're going to keep the content rolling. This is not slowing down anytime soon, but we appreciate all these guys sticking along with us and, and listening in. And Brett, I appreciate you hopping on here with me and taking a little time out of your day. I know you're busy with the twins and, and I hope they're doing well. Uh, but yeah, thanks again for hopping on here with me, brother. Yeah, man, we just, uh, we just need the sec to make it official that this season is starting on time. So we can start doing, opponent breakdowns and um all the all those things that uh get people ready for for the season just need them to make that official which i mean i don't know about you i'm I'm feeling more optimistic about it now than i was a month ago absolutely oh yeah um I, i think that with where things are trending now granted you know, I feel a lot better about sports coming back. Maybe not college football as much just because they rely so heavily on fan attendance that it's going to be tough as far as you're going to have to figure out a way to get fans in these seats if you want it to happen in the fall. Oh, but see, I, I disagree. Okay. Well, the, w- let's go ahead and have this debate real quick because, I mean, I, and it's not really a debate, just this discussion really because, you know, why do you disagree? TV money, brother. What, and I think the NFL is the one, when you talk about their revenue stream, it relies a lot more on TV deals. But with uh, college football, they were already concerned about fan attendance. And there's some concern with uh, with some of the decision makers that if you let people stay home all season, 
and not go to these games, there's going to be a lot of people who realize, hey, I kind of prefer this. You don't have to fight game day traffic. You're not out in the uh, the conditions. You got a bathroom right there that's accessible. You got way cheaper food. Um, you know, you've seen college football fan attendance already starting to de- decrease at least a little bit. Yeah, that's and, the thing. That's that's happening already. Like like yeah. ads are already renovating their stadium. No better example than Alabama renovating their stadium to make the stadium more friendly to people who are realizing I don't have to go sit in 95 degree heat for five hours and fight people to go to this bathroom and pay $20 for concession stand snacks when I can just sit at home with a, with a cold adult beverage, whatever I want at a normal price, sit in air conditioning, with a improved broadcast quality and, and all that, that that's already happening and ADs are already reacting to that. So I, I, I know like the <laughs> people seem to have fun with me dunking on Darren Rovell on Twitter that one time, which stick around. I'll, I'll probably do that more often. He makes it very easy to dunk on him. But uh, outside of that, like I just, the TV money rules all in, in college football and college athletics, like TV money, Rules all. Don't get me wrong. The colleges would much rather play the season with fans in attendance than without. But if it comes down to playing a season, playing a full season with no fans or playing a half season with fans, I'm guessing that they would choose playing the full season without fans because that means they get the full allotment of TV money and that is hundreds of millions of dollars per conference. You get to the billion level once you factor in all of Division One or, or FBS, and then you get the playoff revenue, which is is a guarantee in a full season, whereas in a partial season, you don't know what you would you would have to do with that. So, and, and I realize conferences are at different levels right now. Like Greg Sankey is out there saying kind of insinuating the SEC is going to play whether other conferences do or not, which is Greg Sankey's way of saying, yo, we getting that paycheck. We we getting that dollar. Heard me? Um, I, I don't know. I just I don't I think the the TV revenue is too important to ignore. And if fan attendance for one season has to come at the expense of that TV money, then they're willing to do that. Because if that TV money doesn't happen, if that TV money doesn't come through, then you're talking huge changes as to how college athletics operates, sports being cut, employees being cut, all of that. Well, I mean, and and see, here's my thing. That's not what I think is going to happen. I'm not saying that. I don't even think they're going to cut it short. Um, I I think that if you start getting closer to the fall and they're saying that fans aren't going to be able to attend because, yes, TV money rules. And you got to think, you know, I guess currently TV – channels or you know uh companies would actually benefit the most because you've already signed these contracts you're not going to get more of a revenue share but you got to think their viewership is going to increase dramatically if there's no fans in the seats because all these fans are sitting at home now watching it plus you have the fans of other teams who can't attend their games and one thing about going to an alabama game you're going to miss out on a ton of college football that day because you're walking around you can't get in front of a tv and things like that so it's a lot more difficult to watch all the other games going on so you'll have all these other fans auburn fans will be sitting at home they'll be able to check out auburn when they play but then they're right there ready to check out alabama too so the viewership would increase you know dramatically 
Now, colleges wouldn't really benefit from that because they're they're locked into that contract. But what I was saying is I think that if you start getting closer to the fall, because fan attendance is super important. I mean, you're talking about just, you know, 100,000 people. You know, you're talking about if if you have 100,000 people attend a game and you're talking about, you know, 60 bucks a ticket, which is very conservative. You're talking about six million dollars per game that they're losing out on not having fans in the seats. But I think that if you have to start choosing, yes, you're right. But I think that the what they're looking at and the reason the spring thing that might actually happen is, um, you know, as you start getting closer to fall, if you can't have fans there, but you can say, okay, we can play the entirety of the season starting in like January. Hopefully, we'll be able to get fans back in the seats. Then you're getting the TV deals. You're not competing um, necessarily as much. Now you'll be competing with with spring sports like basketball and stuff, and that could be detrimental to them and their viewership. But I think you're still getting the TV money. You're still getting fans in the seats. There's there's so many different ways that you can navigate these waters, and we have no idea what it is they're going to do. My hope uh, at the end of the day would be for them to start in the fall. If that doesn't end up happening, you might end up having the NFL kind of rule the fall because they only have one decision maker, uh, essentially, that's going to be making the call one way or, you know, maybe not just one. You're going to have owners also getting their input. But Roger Goodell already powered through the draft. There was a lot of owners and GMs and stuff that were kind of pressing against that, saying that they needed more time and it was difficult with what's going on to be able to properly evaluate players. And Roger Goodell said, "I, I really don't care. We're doing it on time and that's exactly what they did and i think if you end up having that with the nfl you might end up having the nfl in the fall and you'll get what they're talking about is if college football doesn't happen in the fall they'll move some of the uh, better nfl games on sundays that maybe were slotted in to be noon games mixed in with a ton of other stuff you can move a couple of those to saturday during the fall and their viewership for those is going to skyrocket because they can be nationally televised games and then you know once you start in the spring you'll get college football back and you might end up having, you know, something like nine, 10 straight months of football. And I mean, that would be cool. But I mean, the ideal situation would be that college and NFL both start in the fall and it's starting to look a lot more likely based off of comments that people are making. I think Tennessee just a few minutes ago uh, joined Alabama and a lot of other SEC schools pretty much saying, Hey, we're planning on our students being back in the fall and students being back means football can happen. So hopefully it ends up playing out that way. And I think you kind of you kind of worked your way around this point. There is a middle ground between the uh, between our two uh, lines of thinking where fans can watch a full season that starts in like October or, or something that that is or November even that's well on the table. So, yeah, yeah, it's, it's all within possibility. I think everyone involved would like to play a full 12 game season with the full allotment of, of fan attendance. Um, I'm still of the belief that if push came to shove, they would pick the TV money over the over the fans. But again, to to go back to what started this particular digression, I think we're both growing more optimistic that the football season will happen as it normally would, uh, be it timeline difference, fan attendance difference, or something. We're we're both growing more optimistic about a 2020 college football season than we were this time six weeks ago. Absolutely. Completely agree there. And we'll continue to keep the uh, the listeners informed on that. Uh, in fact, we'll probably start getting more into that. And I wouldn't mind that being a roundtable discussion. I'd love to get Cecil Hurt's thoughts on on what he thinks could end up happening as far as college football and what he's hearing as far as because you know, a guy like Cecil is going to be a lot more on the know. Um, and so that, I think that'll be a fun discussion and we'll have that coming up and a lot more. So 
Yet again, we appreciate you guys listening in. This has been the Bama Beat Podcast brought to you by Wickles Pickles. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.